thank you all so much for coming out. I'm, I'm incredibly excited uh, that we get to do this as a church. If you want just like some practical things before we get started, okay? I'm spitballing that tonight's probably going to go like two hours. So just kind of plan. We'll try and keep it engaging, whatever else. But that's just my guess. If we're lucky, it might be less. If we're unlucky, it might be more. Uh, logistically, as far as food is concerned, you're all at tables of eight. So where there's a line, okay, when we're passing food and whatever else, it only needs to move on that table. It doesn't need to move all the way down and all the way back. So from one line of table to the next, all right, you've got juice in a cup. That juice is going to have to last you for four sips through the evening. So there are pitchers where you can refill, but if you throw it all down right at the beginning, it's going to be a long night. So make it last, okay? Um, with that, let's, just, let's pray and get started. Lord, we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather together just as a group of believers and, and celebrate what you've done. And so we pray that you would speak to us tonight that you'd have your way in our hearts and in our lives and that you would be glorified. And it's in your name we pray, amen. amen. So tonight we kind of, we're celebrating a Passover Seder dinner and to understand the context of why Christians would be celebrating a Jewish holiday, let's go back, we talked about it a little bit on Sunday morning, but in Matthew chapter five, verse 17, and Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by any means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So Christianity is not something that started when Jesus died and rose again. Christianity is something that started in Genesis chapter 3, when God told the woman that one of your descendants is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Okay, there's going to be an end to sin because sin had just entered the world. And so Christianity is the story that God is telling through all of world history. And so as Christians, we don't say, wow, the New Testament has relevance and the Old Testament doesn't. We say the whole focus of the entire scripture is pointing to Jesus Christ. And Passover is just a great time for us to kind of pause and stop and step back because it's filled with so much significance as believers. But hopefully tonight what we're going to do is enjoy a meal, enjoy fellowshipping with one another, enjoy the process and the ceremony, but also then be reminded that as much as we're going to learn about not just the Jewish Passover but the love of Christ for us, that symbolism, that depth and richness is throughout the entire scriptures. And it's especially throughout the entire Old Testament. The whole thing is relevant for us. So as we're opening up, um, Matthew 26 gives us the narrative of the Last Supper that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. And in Matthew 26, in verse 17, it says, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening had come, he sat down with the 12. Now as they were eating, he said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? 
And he said to him, you have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So the Last Supper, which is like really one of the most pivotal moments in Christian history, it's one of the things that defines so much of what it means to be a Christian, was actually a Passover celebration. And Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And specifically, there's going to be 15 steps to a traditional Passover. We're going to go through all 15 of them tonight. But these 15 steps have been in place since the time of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. So they have been in place for 500 years before the time of Christ. And that's important because it means that Jesus would have gone through the exact same 15 steps with his disciples as we're going to go through tonight. Okay? And so tonight is a little bit of a Passover celebration. It's also a little bit of a Last Supper celebration. They're going to kind of overlay on top of each other. And so we're going to sort of see them both together. We're looking at the Passover to remember God's faithfulness to keep his word to the Jewish people and just to, to keep his word and sustain his promises. But we're also looking at the Last Supper to remember his faithfulness to us and the love of Christ and watching it manifest. All right? So traditionally at this point in the Passover, the woman of the house lights the candles. So I'm going to ask whichever lady is closest to the candle, if you wouldn't mind lighting it. And while you do that, we're going to start step one. And you all have, you've got a little pamphlet on your plate. It has the order of steps if you want to keep track of where we're at. All right. So it's just candles. It's okay. Step one is called the cup of sanctification. And with the cup of sanctification, what we're going to do is we're going to take a sip from the glass. Traditionally, we'd all have four glasses. It's a little bit hard to maneuver that in a group this size. So we're going to use our imaginations, and your cup is four cups, all right? So we're drinking from the first one. And the cup of sanctification reminds us to be thankful for what God has done in the past year, all right? We are here because God has a plan. We are here because God has cleansed us. We are here because we're adopted into the family of God, all right? So I'm going to ask my dad, Scott Murphy, to say a quick prayer of thanksgiving for all the faithfulness of the Lord over the past year, and then we're going to take a sip of this together. Amen. Let's take a sip. The next step is the washing of hands. And at a normal Passover, again, we're kind of going to modify some parts. Normally, every single one of us would do this. We're not doing it that way tonight. It's just not going to work. But a traditional Passover, you know, there's... is. It's full of tradition and ceremony. And so the way you would have to wash your hands, every one of us, is you'd hold the pitcher in your left hand and you'd pour a little bit of water in your right hand. And then you would do it again. And then you would do it again. And then you would put the pitcher in your right hand and you'd pour it on your left hand. And then you'd do it again. And then you would do it again. So it's a fairly elaborate event, and it's not found in Scripture, but it's part of the Passover tradition. And this is part of the reason why the Pharisees were always getting frustrated at Jesus. They'd say, hey, you're not washing your hands correctly. And Jesus is saying, it's not that Jesus has no vision for sanitation. He's saying, I don't need to follow the rules that you're adding to the Word. But in the Passover, though, the goal is to remind us that we want to be purified. They're not using soap. It's a symbol. 
It's not about cleansing. It's about purification. So they're saying, God, we want to be pure before you, right? So as we're kind of watching a sequence here, God has sanctified us, and now we want to be pure. Step three is the eating of the green vegetables. So it's interactive. Every plate, again, we said it's going to, you know, every plate covers a table of eight people. So every plate should have a smaller, every table should have a small plate on it with some parsley and a little bowl of water. That is salt water. Do not drink it. So while I'm talking, everybody can grab it themselves a piece and you're going to dip it in your salt water. All right, so go for it. And as you pull it out, you're going to notice a couple of things. The first is that the parsley is going to start wilting. All right? When you dip that parsley in the salt water, it starts wilting. The second is that the water is dripping off of it, and it kind of looks like tears. And so what we're doing here, what the Israelites would be doing, is they'd be remembering their slavery in Egypt. And they'd remember that it was just, it was bitter. It was full of tears and hardship and grief, okay? And for us, as Christians, we, re- we understand that when, you know, in the same way that the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt, we have been delivered out of sin. And so we look at it and we see the tears of being trapped in sin, of being trapped in bondage to the world and to the, the world system, okay? So now that you've dipped it, eat it. Isn't that the most delicious thing ever, right? It's so good. No. It's not good. And that's why you'll have a cup of water next to you if you think it tastes disgusting. But here's what we're remembering, right? What we're remembering is when you're trapped in slavery, life tastes like this. When we're walking in sin, this is what life is like, right? All the pleasure we just got out of that bite, that's what sin gives us. That's what slavery and bondage gives us. Now, it's time for step four. If you're thinking, hey, we're whipping through these steps we're going to be done in 25 minutes. You're wrong. They, they slow down as we go, okay? But step four is what's called the breaking of the matzah. And so traditionally, we've got three pieces of matzah, and they're in a special matzah bag, all right? Matzah is flatbread. This is not, I've got three pieces. You guys all have one piece. It's for later on. So right now, you're just watching. Sorry, okay? But I've got, I've got three pieces of matzah, in a napkin. And what the Jewish people do, what they've always done for centuries before the time of Christ, is they take the middle piece of matzah out. And they're going to take that piece out, they're going to break it, they're going to put one half back in, and then they're going to wrap the other piece in linen. And here's what they're going to do now. They're going to hide it. Sean Holmes has graciously volunteered, thank you Sean, to come on up and hide it. So here's what we're going to do. If you are 12 years old or under, you need to close your eyes because we are going to hide the matzah. All right? It's going to be somewhere in this room, but hold on. You've got to close your eyes, okay? We've got, you're going to have a chance to find it later on. You can go for it. Tuck it away somewhere. All right? But you've got to keep your eyes closed. This is super important. Eyes have got to stay closed, okay? Eyes have got to stay closed. Keep them closed. Keep them closed. No peeking. No peeking. Wait. Wait. Okay, you can open your eyes. All right. So the middle piece of matzah has been hidden. Now, we're going to get back to this later, but I want you to think about this for a second. What does it represent? 
We took the middle piece, we broke it, and it's hidden away until it's time for it to be revealed. Now, if you ask the Jewish people, why do we break the middle piece of matzah, they'll say, we have no idea. If you ask them, what do the three pieces represent? There's no clear consensus. Some people say, well, it represents the priests and the Levites and the rest of the Israelites. And so you ask them, well, why do we then break the Levites? We have no idea. Or maybe they say it's the, it's the three patriarchs. It's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so why are we going to break Isaac? And they have no idea. But it's a symbol. It's pointing to something. And we're going to just, just chew on it for a second. Why would you break something, hide it away, and then find it again when it's time? All right? The next step is going to be the telling of the Exodus story. And for this part, I'm going to need a couple volunteers. I need somebody who is old enough to read and old enough to read clearly. There's, there's at least four of us in the room here, right? That we can do this, okay? All right, we're just going to do this. What is the fun way? Okay. So we're going to do them in order. All right, question one. Why is this night so different from all other nights? Question number two. That's you, yep. Why do we only eat unleavened matzah tonight instead of bread and lettuce? Question number three. Why do we eat bitter herbs tonight? And question number four. Why do we eat dinner reclining tonight? So we've got four questions. We need to answer the four questions. And I'm going to walk back and forth with this part a little bit because I don't need anything at the table. And I figured it'd be more interesting if you guys could see me. So the next thing we want to do is we want to read... Not that I'm that interesting, but just that it's got to be awkward down at the end of the table, okay? So I want to, we're going to read the Exodus story. In Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood... And put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw or boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire, and thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff on your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." So in here, we see the answers to these four questions, okay? But I want us to notice a couple things. Notice that the lamb is supposed to be brought in to their house on the first day of the week. And it would be examined during the week to make sure it didn't have any defects, to make sure it didn't have any flaws, to make sure you didn't buy a lamb that looked healthy and wasn't healthy. The lamb's going to get examined, all right? And then it's going to be slaughtered on Passover. In the same way, Jesus Christ comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the first day of the week. And what happens to him during Passover week? He's examined. The priests in the temple are trying to catch him. They're trying to make him stumble or make him say something wrong or say something that's not true, and they can't do it. And, and they're examining the lamb, the lamb of God, for defects, and they find none. And so what do they do? They slaughter him. 
they kill him on Passover, right? And so what's happening here is the Israelites are, without realizing, living out a prophecy. They're living out a picture of what the Lord wants to do. But notice something else. The Lord says you're going to kill the lamb. In a later verse, he says you're going to kill it basically at the threshold. And you're going to spread the blood on both sides of the door and on the top of the door, okay? And when that happens, this is the final plague in Egypt. The Lord says the angel of death is going to come through tonight. And he's going to, just, he's going to kill the firstborn in every house that doesn't have the blood. And so there's two important things here, okay? That doorway is only going to protect them if it has blood marking it, right? Their only hope of deliverance is if there is a barrier of blood between them and the angel of death. And in the exact same way for us, our only hope of deliverance is if the blood of Jesus Christ is protecting us and covering us. Now, there's something else, though. They killed the lamb at the threshold. So that night, the Egyptians wake up, and there's a dead child in every home. And they say, get out of Egypt. This is it. This is the 10th plague. We are done. You are free to go. Leave right now. And the Israelites are going to walk out. And what are they going to do? They're going to walk through the blood. And as you're watching this exodus happen, if you're in Egypt that night or that morning, you're going to see thousands and thousands and thousands of bloody footprints. Because the only way to freedom is through the doorway, right? Jesus said, I am the door for the sheep. And so the only way that we are protected from the angel of death is if the blood of Jesus Christ is saving us. But the only way we can experience freedom is if we walk in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that's going to set us free to have that liberty. Any Israelite could have said, no, I'm going to stay in my house. I do not want to walk through that blood. And they might have felt clean, but they would have stayed a slave. And our path to freedom is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. So with that, we're going to take... We're kind of just looking at some of these answers to the four questions, right? We're, why is tonight different? Because we're celebrating that the lamb was sacrificed for us. Why are we eating unleavened bread tonight? Because we're reminded that we need to get leaven out of our lives. Leaven or yeast is a picture in the Bible of sin. And we're reminded that we want to walk in that freedom. We want to walk out of Egypt, right? We want to walk out of sin. Why do we eat bitter herbs tonight? Because we want to remember that being trapped in sin is an awful place to be. And it says, why do we eat reclining? Uh, we're going to, I'll explain a little bit later on kind of what that looks like. It's a little weird for us because we're all sitting, we're not reclining. Um, but the idea is we're at rest. And that's something that only free people get to experience, right? We're celebrating tonight because we're free. That's what the Jewish people are doing. And for us, in a much greater spiritual sense, that's what we're doing. So we're going to get ready here to drink from the second cup. And this is called the cup of the plagues, all right? But before we do it, we want to remember the plagues in Egypt and what the Lord did to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, okay? So what you're going to do, everybody's got your own cup, so it's not a big deal. You're going to dip your finger in it and let it come out and let a drop fall off, all right? And we're going to do it one time for each plague. So you're going to dip your finger in and pull it out and remember that the river turned to blood. You're going to dip your finger in and pull it out and remember the plague of the frogs, we're going to dip our finger in and pull it out and remember the plague of the lice. We're going to dip our finger in and pull it out and remember the plague of the flies. We're going to dip our finger in and pull it out and remember that the livestock were stricken. We're going to dip our finger in and pull it out and remember the plague of the boils. We're going to dip our finger in and pull it out and remember the plague of hail. We're going to dip our finger in and pull it out and remember the plague of the locust. 
We're going to dip our finger in and pull it out and remember the plague of darkness. And lastly, we're going to dip our finger in and pull it out and remember the death of the firstborn. And so with all that in mind, remembering all of our trials and remembering all of God's faithfulness and all that he's gone through to save us, we're going to take a sip from the second cup, the cup of plagues. So we are moving along. Step six is washing your hands again. That's fun. So, but this time, there's, there's something different. This time, it's not just washing the hands. It's washing hands with a blessing. So it'd be the same deal, right? Pour it on, pour it on, pour it on. And then again, pour it on, pour it on, pour it on. And if you want to be really spiritual and, and make it a full ceremony, you could do extra, you could hold your hands certain ways to kind of, you know, run it this way, run the water this way, and, and you could do all that kind of stuff. But we say a blessing this time when we wash our hands because washing the hands is not just an act of cleanliness. It's also a reminder to us of the law of God and the Old Testament law, all right, and all the rules and the regulations about being clean and being cleansed and being purified. And what we want to do is we want to be remember that we're called to be thankful for those things, right? Paul tells us in the New Testament that the law is perfect. The law is given by God to say, if you keep this perfectly, you will be holy. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is, the only problem with the law is that we are so sinful that we can't keep it. And so there's nothing wrong with the law. And so we need to express thankfulness for the law of God, thankfulness for the things that God puts in place to protect us, to save us, to deliver us, to keep us from defiling ourselves, right? And so we are thankful for the law, but we're also at the same time thankful for the grace of God because Jesus, like in Matthew 5, said, I've come to fulfill the law. Jesus is the only man who ever kept the law perfectly and in so doing, he demonstrated that he's actually above the law. He is a higher authority than the law and so he alone has the right to say, I am offering you the grace to come not under the law, but under my covering. And so we are incredibly thankful for the word of God and for the law of God. We're also incredibly thankful for the grace of God. So I'm going to ask Mike Turner, if you would, please stand up and say a prayer of thankfulness to the Lord for his word. Amen. That brings us to step seven, which is blessing the matzah. So you all should have a piece of matzah on your plate. All right. We're going to grab it, and what we're going to do is notice a couple things before we get into this. Notice that it is totally flat, right? There was no yeast mixed in this baby, right? And it's a picture for us because yeast, again, throughout the scriptures is a picture of sin, right? Because just a little bit, just a little bit of yeast will corrupt an entire loaf of bread, and the, the more yeast you put in, the bigger and fluffier the bread gets, maybe the nicer it looks, and the less substance it actually has, right? It's just full of air. There's nothing really there. And so matzah is a picture for us of what we want our lives to be. We want our lives to be free from sin. We want there to be substance. And so with this, we want to thank the Lord that he has taken the sin out of our lives through what Jesus did on the cross. So Lord, we thank you that you have cleansed us from sin, that you've removed it from our lives, that it's not held to our account. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Now, take your matzah, break it into four pieces. You're going to need all four, 
and then together we're going to eat the first and be reminded that we want to live lives free from sin. And if you don't eat all this much at once, you don't have to. Okay, we all good? All right, so you thought that was fun. Here's the next step. On every table, next to your parsley and your salt water, you've got a little jar. And that is not sour cream. That is horseradish. And you're going to take your spoon and put some horseradish on that matzah. And you're going to eat it. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll qualify it, all right? If you are not a spicy food person, God still loves you. Um, but traditionally... The rule of Passover is you need to make sure you take enough horseradish that it makes you cry. That is what it is supposed to do when you eat it. So if you are like, this ain't happening, then just do a little bit, but, but put it a little bit on and eat it because we want to be reminded of something, right? This is bitter. This is, this is bitter, right? So we want to remember something. Sin is bitter, but also... Life is hard, right? Sometimes life is like horseradish and it just hits and it's hard and it makes you cry and there's not much of anything you can do about it. And we remember that as Christians because Christianity never says, oh, hey, once you come to Jesus, your life is going to be good. We never forget that life is hard. But before we get too carried away, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to fix the problem, all right? So take two pieces of matzah. All right, you're going to take the horseradish again as little as possible, as little as possible, and put it on one piece of matzah. And then you're going to take your other piece and dip into, you've got a little plate of apples on your table, pass it around, you're going to dip into that. So get a good apple piece on your matzah. So when we get around, when the pieces get around the table, you should have two pieces of matzah. One is going to have apples on it, and the other one is going to have just a little bit of horseradish on it. So everybody got the two pieces? Everybody got them? All right. Put them together and make a sandwich. All right? Just like this, if you can see it. This is called Hillel's Sandwich because Rabbi Hillel came up with it. Creative name. But here's the idea, okay? This is the most recent part of the Passover ceremony. It's about 100 years before Christ. But Jesus would have still done this part with his disciples. Hillel's sandwich was added as a reminder of something, okay? We have the bitter herbs. We've got the horseradish. Life is hard, right? But Hillel wanted to make a point, and that is that oftentimes the hardest things in life, the most bitter trials in life, are accompanied by a specific kind of sweetness, right? By a relationship with the Lord, by a closeness to God, by, a, by just certain blessings that are going to come to your life that are specific to times of trial. And so we never deny that life is hard. We accept it, we walk in it, but we always are looking for that promise of God because there's always sweetness in the midst of the trial. So remembering that and also trying to forget some of the horseradish, let's eat it together. So traditionally at this point, we'd go to step 10, which is eating the meal. But before we do, I'm going to ask if we can all actually come back over here to where we were earlier, and I want to demonstrate something that I think is really going to help us understand the Last Supper, all right? So uh, Zeke and Titus are going to come up. They've got something they're going to grab for me, but I need 13 volunteers, and the requirement is you need to be able to get down on the floor 
and get back up off the floor. All right? So you decide amongst yourselves who that is. But come on up, okay? And then, what, and then once you guys are here, I need everybody else come on up because I want everybody to be able to see what we're going to do. All right, so do I have volunteers? All right, here's what I need, all right? And we're just kind of, once we get everybody down, you can hold it. I need 13 people we're gonna, who are going to get down on the floor and lean on their left arm like this, all right? So on your left arm. It's got to be on your left. Other way. There we go. All right, so let me take my spot. We're going to have four people here. Thank you. Can we get one more person here? Titus, you can do it. All right, is everybody on your left? You're on your right. You're on your right. There we go. There we go. And okay, so this is what it would have looked like at the Last Supper. This is what the shape of the table would have been that Jesus and his disciples were at. This is called a triclinium. It would have been probably 8 to 12 inches off the ground. And so when we say, why do we eat tonight reclining, this is what they would have looked like. Okay? And the reason I want us to pay attention to this is because the Gospels give us a couple of specific references to where people are at in this meal. And it really helps understand certain things about the Last Supper, okay? So here's what we know. Jesus would have been the host of the meal. And the host of the meal always sat in Cohen's spot. So Cohen is in the place of Jesus tonight. Nice job. Okay? So Jesus is hosting the meal. There would have always been the door over here where they would have brought food in and out, okay? But we don't know where everybody was. We don't know where each disciple was. But we have a couple references that are important. So John tells us in his gospel that he leaned back on Jesus' chest to ask who was going to betray Jesus. And the only person right now at the table who can lean back on Cohen's chest is Sandy. So John, the disciple, would have been right here, which is important because this is a very honored seat. This is like friend of the host, okay? Kind of like best man category, all right? Like you are a close friend, you're trusted, you're also sort of running security because you're broadside to the host. If anything comes through that door, you're the first line of defense. So it's a trusted position, and it should go to the most responsible person on the team. Now, John, most people say, was the youngest disciple. So John doesn't belong here, all right? And every seat at this table is not accidental. Nobody just picks a seat. A seat at a table like this in an Eastern culture is very specific to where you are in the lineup, all right? And you sit in order, and it matters. And you don't accidentally sit in a spot that's not high enough, right? You make sure that you are in the proper sequence. So John belongs right here if he's the youngest disciple. And they would have been seated in order of rank. But John's not here. John's in a place of honor. But there's a couple problems with being the guy in place of honor, and that is that you get the privilege, and you sort of get to be close to the host, but you don't have a lot of great conversation, right? He really can't see anybody here. He really can't see anybody here. He can only see people here. So when John tells us in his gospel that Peter looks at John and signals to him, ask Jesus who's going to betray him, we know that Peter is at the bottom of the table. So he's either in this, you know, one of these seats, probably, I'd venture to guess, the very last seat, the lowest place at the meal. And knowing Peter, that probably wasn't his idea, right? Peter's not usually the, you know what, I'll just step back, you guys all go for what you want, and I'll take what's left. Peter, I'm sure, is convinced that he belongs right here. And he knows it, and everybody else knows that he knows it, and John belongs right here. So however it worked, whether Peter plopped down, Jesus said, hey, I was thinking we should give John that spot. 
And Peter says, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I was just getting ready to ask you that. Uh, or whether or not, you know, as they're getting ready, John, Jesus says, hey, you know what, guys, tonight is John's night, uh, whatever. Peter's down here, and Peter's ticked. Peter is ticked off. And there's a reason we can say that with a little bit of authority, because if you're the person down here, you've got a job. If there's no servants bringing food in and out, your job is to wash everybody else's feet. And Peter's sitting there saying, I don't belong in this position. I deserve better. I am not getting up to wash these guys' feet because this guy right here should be lower than me. And so I'm not washing his feet. This guy should be lower. I belong right here. No, I should not have to wash anybody's feet. I am higher. I am better than that. And everybody else is thinking, well, Peter's at the bottom. Serves him right. Peter gets to wash my feet tonight for a change, right? And so they're all sitting there quietly arguing about who's the greatest and what happens at the end of the meal. Jesus gets up and he's going to wash all their feet. And it says when he got to Peter, which is part of another great reason to say that Peter's probably the last one. Peter's watching this thinking, oh, this is a test. All these guys are dumb enough to let Jesus wash their feet. I'm going to say, no, 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 you don't need to wash my feet. I'm going to show them that I'm the best disciple. And Jesus says, no, actually, you do need me, you do need me to wash your feet. And so Peter's sitting here, he's ticked. We know where one other person is. And this is really important because it tells us that Jesus dipped his bread in the sauce and then handed it to Judas. Now, if Jesus is leaning on his left arm, there's only two people who he can offer that to. He can offer it to John, who we know he didn't, or he can offer it to the person immediately next to him. So we know that Judas, on the night of the Last Supper, is sitting right next to Jesus. And John is in sort of the friend of the host seat. Judas is in the guest of honor seat. Judas, right, the one who's going to betray him, is in the place of honor. And Jesus is going to dip that bread in the sauce and put it in Judas's mouth. And there's a picture there, I think, right up to the end, right? Jesus has got his bread in that sweet mixture, that, those apples. And it's, hey, look, he's looking at Judas. Hey, you do not have to go through with this. You can still experience the sweetness and the fellowship that you can have with me. And he puts it in his mouth and Judas swallows it. And says, yeah, I'd rather have the horseradish. I'd rather have the bitterness. And right then, Satan enters them and possesses them. But as they're sitting at this table, it's the grace of God on display. Right? Jesus said the first is going to be last, and the last is going to be first. This order of Peter and John is flipped. This is not how it should be in a world structure. And Jesus doesn't care. Jesus is not here to exalt Peter based on his status. Jesus is here to demonstrate that he is Christ. And Jesus is not here to look down on Judas. Jesus is here to demonstrate grace. Okay, so I want us to see this, and I know it's fast, okay, but I want us to understand this, that the Last Supper is not, you know, we can just read it really fast and, and just kind of zip through it. You know, we've read it. We read it four times every year if we're reading all the Gospels, and it's like, yeah, whatever. They had the Last Supper. They went out. No, 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 no. There's a ceremony. There are steps that they're going through. And, and Jesus says he loved them till the end. Jesus gives Judas that opportunity for grace right up until the end. And he gives us the same opportunity for grace, right? The grace of God is an amazing gift and it's offered to each and every one of us. So we want to make sure that we don't waste it, right? We want to walk in and grow in the grace of God for us, okay? So thank you, everybody, for getting down. You can get back up now. And now it is time. We can all go back to our seats. We're going to eat 
the Passover meal. But one other thing, just real fast, and then I'm going to shut it off and sit down and eat with you guys. Um, the eggs are not an Easter tradition. They have been around again since well before the time of Christ, and they're a picture for the Jewish people and for us that God brings new life out of things that look dead, right? There's nothing in an egg that remotely suggests that it's a chicken. There's, just, there's no way you look at that and think, oh, it's a chicken, other than the fact that it's happened so many times. And there's no way that our lives have any indication that God can do a work, except for the fact that we've seen God do it so many times in so many people's lives. So with that being said, eat your hearts out, not literally, and we're going to eat the meal, and then I'll get back up as we're wrapping up. Step 11, if we're going to keep doing the Seder, we're going to wrap it up tonight. Step 11, do you remember when we hid that piece of matzah? Do you remember what, does anybody remember what it's called? I'll give you a hint, it's sitting right in front of you. The afikoman is the name of the piece of bread that gets hidden in that, in that napkin. Now, if you had your eyes closed, it is now time to find the afikoman. So, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't get ahead of me. Don't get ahead of me. When I say go. All right, is everybody ready to go find the afikoman? If you are 12 and under, if you had your eyes closed... You can find it when I say, on your mark, get set. You know what, maybe we should just skip it and go to step 12. What do you think? <laughs> All right, on your mark, get set, go. All right. Give it up for Janessa. All right, all right, all right, all right. So here's the deal. Janessa found the afikoman. Now, it was a little crumpled by the time she found it, but it is what it is, okay? But here's what happens next in the Passover Seder. We're going to, we found it. Now, we need to eat it as a group. So, break off a small piece and pass it down, all right? We're going to pass it down. We're all going to wind up with a small piece of bread, and we'll take time. It's okay. It's worth waiting. We'll let it get all the way to the end, all right? All right. Do we make it to the end? Does everybody have a piece? Does anybody not have a piece? Okay. So here's an important, this is a really important part of a Passover Seder meal. Because at this point in the meal, most likely, is when Jesus says he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And there's a lot of symbolism there that's really important. Because we said at the beginning, it's the middle piece Right? The Jewish people have three pieces of, of bread. They take out the middle one and they break it. What's going to happen to Jesus? He's the middle member of the Trinity, right? You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is going to be broken. He has no yeast in his life. He has no sin. He's totally perfect. He's going to be broken. He's going to be wrapped in linen and buried in the tomb until it's time. Right? And so he said, take and eat, and this is my body. But there's something else that's interesting, and that is at the Afikoman. This middle piece of matzah that we're getting to eat is also called, it has another name. It's called the I have come bread. And if you ask a Jewish person why it's called that, they do not have an answer. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Right? And so when we take this in a Passover Seder, we're not just sharing bread collectively and joining in. There's a very strong idea of we're all now partaking. We are all unified because we're taking of the same piece of bread. 
All right? So there's not just symbolism there, but there's this depth of symbolism here. What are we doing? We are remembering the body of Christ that was broken for us. It wasn't broken for his sins. There's no yeast in it, right? But we're going to take together of, and remember that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. So let's take it together. Now, the next step is called the cup of redemption, all right? And it does a couple things. It's supposed to remind the Israelite people of the lamb's blood in Exodus. It's supposed to remind them that a lamb had to die in order for them to be free. There was a sacrifice that happened. But at this point in the meal, Jesus took a cup and he says, this is my blood that's poured out for you. And so when we, take a, when we celebrate a Passover meal, our, you know, Jewish people around the world are celebrating it this week and they're remembering that there was the blood of a lamb that was shed for them in Egypt. We're taking it tonight and we're remembering that the blood of the lamb was shed for us in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, this is my blood. And so we remember this is called the cup of of redemption. Redemption is in the blood. We're redeemed because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So with that, Lord, we thank you for your redemption. We pray that you would remind us of it and make us thankful for it. Let's take a sip together. Now, notice what we just did. We just took communion, right? We just had communion as a church. And sometimes people will say, you know, Jesus took the elements of Passover and he changed them to make them point to him. No. They have always been pointing to him. Right? The whole point of Passover was looking forward to Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus did is he instantly he said, basically, you need to remember this. And when you do this, remember me. So we're remembering the Passover, but we're remembering in Jesus Christ. And when we take communion, tonight we're going to take communion on, on Sunday. We take communion as a church regularly. What we need to not do is see it as a time when we try to get through line, get our peace, get our drink, not spill anything, not make a scene, not make a mess, and get back to our chair. What we need to see it as is a specific point in this ceremony. The summary, right? The first cup, that we want to be sanctified, we want to be purified, that sin is bitter, that life is hard, and that God has brought us out of all of them. That the blood of Jesus is our protection from the angel of death, and he's also our path to freedom. When we take communion as a church, it is not just here's bread, here's juice, take them. It's remembering all these things collectively. And that's why there is so much depth and richness in the Passover for Christians, for believers in Jesus Christ. So with that, we come to the next step. This is called the blessing after eating. And it's really two steps specifically, all right? Two things are going to happen simultaneously. All of you have your little program thing. I'm going to read it. It's on the back of your program. It's called the Barkat Hamatzon. I'm going to read it. And it's a series of blessings, of thankfulness, of praise to the Lord. While I'm doing that, I'm going to ask Nathaniel Ball, if he would, to run into the sanctuary, grab a chair, Bring it back out. And we're going to put a chair at the end of your table in case the prophet Elijah wants to come in and sit down with us. All right? And it's a specific step in the Passover ceremony, and they go together. And so I'm going to read this. Nathaniel's going to grab that while we're doing it, and then I'll explain sort of how they both apply. All right? So here we go. It says, If he had taken us out of Egypt and had not split the sea for us, it would have been enough. If he had split the sea for us and had not taken us through on dry land, it would have been enough. If he had taken us through it on dry land and had not pushed down our enemies in the sea, it would have been enough. 
If he had pushed down our enemies in the sea and had not supplied our needs in the wilderness for 40 years, it would have been enough. If he had supplied our needs in the wilderness for 40 years and had not fed us the manna, it would have been enough. If he had fed us the manna and had not given us the Shabbat, it would have been enough. If he had given us the Shabbat and had not brought us close to Mount Sinai, it would have been enough. If he had brought us close to Mount Sinai and had not given us the Torah, it would have been enough. If he had given us the Torah and had not brought us into the land of Israel, it would have been enough. If he had brought us into the land of Israel and had not built us the temple, it would have been enough. The Jewish people have been reading this for thousands of years in, in some basic form. It gets changed around a little bit. But the same basic idea has been read out loud every Passover for thousands of years. And the idea is we want to look back at what God has done, right? And for us, there's sort of a double meaning. We're looking back to the Passover. We're looking back to when God brought Israel out of Egypt and demonstrated, you know, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he demonstrated his power and his faithfulness to keep his word to his people. But we're also looking back to the Last Supper, right? And so like the Israelites, we say, man, if he had, if he had just, you know, if he had started the process, that would have been such an act of goodness on his part, it would have been sufficient. If he, had, if he hadn't even bothered finishing, right? If he had begun a good work in us and hadn't finished it, that would have been more than we deserved. And we would have owed him thankfulness for that. But what's the idea here? The idea is we're not just looking back, we're looking forward. And that's where the chair for Elijah comes in. Because there's a prophecy in, I believe it's Isaiah, that says that Elijah's going to come to, to proclaim the coming of the Lord. Elijah's going to come as the forerunner of, of Christ. And John the Baptist comes, and they say, are you Elijah? And he says, no, I'm not. But Jesus says, John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so I believe in the book of Revelation, it talks about there's two witnesses who are going to come right before the end when the Lord comes back. And I believe one of them is the prophet Elijah. And in the same way that the Passover is the shadow, if you will, of the Last Supper, I think John the Baptist is the shadow of the coming of Elijah. And honestly, in a, in a similar way, the first coming of Christ, if you will, is a type. It's almost a shadow, and it feels bad to say that because it's such a sacred moment, but it's almost a shadow of the second coming of Christ, right? The fullness, right? We understand Christ conquered sin. He conquered death, but we still experience sin and death in this world. He's, at this point, Death is on its way out. It has lost the war, but it's still fighting the battle. There's a point in time coming at which that's going to end, right? We talk about the triumphal entry, and really, that's the humble entry, right? Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is the picture of his real entry when it says he's on a white horse, he's wearing a robe dipped in blood, he's wearing a crown of righteousness, he has a, his tongue is like a sword, and he's going to judge the nations of the earth with justice. That's the triumphal entry right? And so we're looking, you know, when we set out the chair for Elijah, we're saying, hey, maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the time. We are looking back. When we read that blessing, we're looking back and saying, here's all that God has done. We're looking forward and saying, yeah, but we are so excited about all that God is still doing, right? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for what we call the Last Supper. But we are so excited about the real Last Supper. What Scripture calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's the real Last Supper, 
right? That's the one we're holding out for. When we're all at a table and Jesus is leading the whole ceremony. That's what's going to be awesome, right? And so we look backwards and forwards. We're in the middle as Christians. We look in both directions and we are thankful for the goodness of God in both of them. Step 14, as we're moving on, we're almost wrapped up for tonight. But at this point in the meal, they would have read or sung from the Psalms and specifically a group of Psalms called the Hallel Psalms, like Hallelujah, the Hallelujah Psalms, all right? And these are specifically Psalms 113 through 118. And I would encourage us all to go back and read them all and consider them in the context of the Passover and the crucifixion and of Easter. But in the interest of time tonight, we're going to read Psalm 118. And I want us to think about, as we're doing that, Jesus reading this psalm with his disciples right before going out into the garden. Okay? So Psalm 118 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. And the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly, and the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. <clears throat> now, we can't possibly, in any uh, reasonable amount of time, unpack everything that's in that chapter, in terms of Jesus saying it at the Last Supper, in terms of the context of the crucifixion. But there's one thing I want us to really notice tonight, and that's verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus is saying this right before walking out into the garden, right before he's going to pray in agony, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done, right before he's going to be forsaken by his friends, betrayed by the man who sat as the guest of honor at the Passover, right before he's going to be brought before Caiaphas, before the events are going to start unfolding, and he's going to be crucified the next day. 
But he says, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. And so Jesus, he's in the garden. He's in agony. He's sweating drops of blood, right? And it's this crazy irony that God is afraid. And we, and we live with the idea as Christians that God is a courageous God. He's not, he doesn't make things easy for himself. He was willing to accept the fear and the pain and the terror and go through with the crucifixion on our behalf. But he says, I'm going to rejoice in this, right? And this is something that is only possible through the Spirit of God. Jesus is in the midst of the most awful pain that a human can imagine, and he's got joy. And there's a joy set before him that's so great that he says, I'm going to endure the cross for the sake of this joy that I have. And that joy is the fellowship of our restored relationship with him, right? So he's getting ready. He's reading this with his disciples, and you've got to wonder what's going through his head at this point, right? Judas has already left the table. He knows things are happening. And he reads this verse, finishes it out, and then they're going to go out to the garden. But this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And Jesus rejoices in the relationship that we get to have with him. So just while we're here, right, I know pretty much everybody at the room. But if you don't know that he's rejoicing in you in that way, if you don't know that, he's, that you have that restored fellowship, if you don't fully recognize that you've been purified and sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ, then do it tonight. I mean, what better time than Passover, right? Grab me as soon as the meal's over. Let's pray for you to receive Christ into your heart. You, you've watched the whole step. He's delivered the people out of Egypt. That doorway is open. You just got to walk through it. So that's the invitation that's there for all of us. But Jesus is standing in joy. He is excited that we get to be with him, right? And with that, we come to the last and final step. At this point in time, the Jewish people always raise their glass and they say, next year in Jerusalem, and they take a sip. Don't sip yet, because I want to explain it. When they say next year in Jerusalem, what they're saying is, you know, I hope next year, maybe we can save enough money, and maybe there will be enough global peace that we could actually make it to Jerusalem and celebrate a Passover there. Because to the Jewish people, Jerusalem is the holiest site in the world. Now for us, as Christians, Jerusalem is an amazing place, but it's amazing because of history. It's not amazing because of holiness, right? What, is, what makes a location holy to a Christian? It's a Christian being there. It's the Spirit of God indwelling. Right now, all right, we're sitting on a linoleum floor with a concrete block building on, plastics and on paper plates and plastic silverware, and this moment is holy because the Spirit of God is here. And so when we say next year in Jerusalem, what we need to not say is that we're putting our hope in a physical location, right? But here's the thing. We said the triumphal entry was the shadow of the real entry, right? The Last Supper is the picture of the Last Supper. Well, Jerusalem is a shadow. The physical Jerusalem that we know here on earth, in the Middle East, in the nation of Israel, is a shadow of what? Of the real Jerusalem. There's a city of God that we're told about in the book of Revelation. It's going to come down out of heaven when God makes a new heaven and a new earth. And we're going to live and dwell and reign there with Jesus Christ. And so when we hold up our glass and we say next year in Jerusalem, we are not saying, hey, I hope next year we're in the nation of Israel. We're saying next year I hope Jesus Christ is with us. 
right? I hope next year we're in heaven, right? Revelation 22 says the spirit and the bride say come. We're the bride of Christ according to the gospels. And so we say come Lord Jesus. So I'm gonna ask us all, let's stand up, right? This is, this is, this is when it's exciting. We're gonna say it together. Do me a favor and don't mumble it. Right? Sometimes we're going to say something as a group and it turns into next year in Jerusalem. No, 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 no. We're excited. The Spirit and the Bride say come and we say come Lord Jesus. So, all together. Next year in Jerusalem. And that is a Passover Seder. To wrap up, says that Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn before they went out to the garden. They could have sung the psalms that we just had, but we don't have a tune for them. So Drew is going to grab his guitar, and we're going to go out singing a song, all right? And after that, you're dismissed. You can stick around, eat as much food as you want, but you are uh, welcome to leave. Thank you guys all so much for coming out. Uh, it's been a huge blessing. So Lord, we just thank you that you are that living hope for the promise that we look back to at the Passover and the Last Supper and the hope that we look forward to at the Final Supper. We just pray that you would go before us, God. Remind us of all of your goodness. Thank you for the salvation that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have through the, his resurrection. And we just ask all these things in your name. We thank you for such a wonderful Savior. Amen.